mighty Lord and everlasting Father. We thank you that you are the God who hears us and who ministers to us. We ask that you would aid us as we look at your self-revelation that you have providentially had written down and that we are now, even thousands of years later, able to look at it, to receive instruction by it. We ask, O God, that as you reveal yourself throughout the words of this book, that you would aid us in understanding who you are, that we, as Abram did, would call upon the name of the Lord. We ask that you would help us as we look at Genesis 11 and 12 today. We ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, allow there to be unction in the preaching and hearing, that the preaching might be right and the hearing might be right as well, that we would leave here having the same kind of justifying faith and obedience that Abram did. We so ask for your help in these things. We pray that your Son would minister to us in the power of the Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look, beginning in Genesis chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxed two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxed, Shem lived 500 years and begat sons and daughters. Arphaxed lived 35 years and begot Salah. And after he begot Salah, Arphaxed lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Reu. After he begot Reu, Peg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and begot Serug. And after he begot Serug, Reu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. And after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his son Abram's wife. They went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. 
and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still towards the south. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. The text begins in this section with the genealogy of Shem and of Terah which is really a backdrop to the narrative overall. Now, of this backdrop, the most important verse in here is the setup that Moses has given us. Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. These genealogies here form the division between everything that happened in the primeval time up until this time that we find here in the line of Shem a chosen man named Abram. He's the line of Terah. And the marginal note that Moses makes concerning Sarai, that she had no child, is going to be a setup for the miracle of Isaac, which is going to come in just a little while. Now, Terah's household came from Shem's line, which was blessed by Noah in chapter 9 and verse 26. Terah's household may have had knowledge of the God of Noah. Genesis 31:53 says, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father. So we see that there's something there, yet there's the overwhelming pagan influences, which seem to be too much. Terah served pagan gods along the Fertile Crescent, and they were the gods of the Babylonians, of which the names Sarah and Milka, Sarah means queen and Milka means princess, Sarai and Milka. The Babylonian words themselves, Sarah too means queen, and Milkatu means princess. So he was very heavily into these gods, and the Babylonian gods of the Fertile Crescent there, even naming his children after them. Then, after the genealogy, we find Genesis 12, 1 to 9, as the central section of the entire book of Genesis. It's the foundation of what will be the Abrahamic promises and the beginning of the family or nation of Israel, the church, as a worshiping community. So we have all of this genealogy, 
And then we come to the main context of the book of Genesis, where everything is going to begin with one man. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. God's election of one man is seen here. We don't hear of Nahor. It was a calling of God, not a seeking of Abram. It was a calling that God did, because nations are rooted and grounded in the will of God, not in what men desire or what men do, especially the covenant nation. God is going to choose Abram. God's election of Abram has a purpose, imperative. It's an imperative that he gives them. It's not a question. It's not good advice. It's imperative. And it's followed by three blessings. He tells them, go out. And he tells them to be a blessing. He is to go out from your family and father's house. And it's not just simply obedience in an in everyday situation. But obedience according to the calling of his election. If he had not believed, he would not have obeyed. So God worked faith in Abram, even as Romans 4 tells us that Abraham, by faith, believed, followed God. And faith by grace, which is given by God, was given to, here, Abram. And faith is demonstrated in obedience. Three themes are prominent in this section. It's a faith narrative. Faith itself is very prominent. Faith on God's revelation and subsequent worship. And as we look at the text, you'll see all three of those things pop out. But the Lord called Abram to forsake his home and to be a blessing to the nations. He has to leave. God promised him great blessings. And as a result, the families of the world would be blessed. But he has to leave. He has to get up and get out and travel where? He doesn't even know. In verses 2, God tells him, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. The imperative is followed by three promises. He's going to be a great nation. He's going to have a great name. He's going to be a great blessing. To be a blessing, then, flows into even more blessings because Abram would be a blessing to others. So wherever he goes, the message of blessing goes with him to others. Anyone who treats Abram lightly will be the recipient of cursing because God is going to fight on behalf of his chosen man. He will protect Abram in order to continue his plan. Disrespecting Abram is to disrespect God. It's disrespect the blessing of God. It disrespects the word of God. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you means in his seed, which is Jesus. Abraham is blessed because in his loins he carries the seed to come. You scoff at the seed to come, you get cursed. Now, Abram is a thoroughly pagan man. And he's, he's not six, twelve, thirteen. He's seventy-five years old. And yet, 
he still listens. Whoever believes God's word will follow God. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Iran. He lived quite a while. And it's a testimony to the faith that God worked in him, that he listened, that he left, that he did what God specifically told him to do. And the key is that Abram went out. What did he go out from? Remember, God had dispersed all of the peoples as a result of the narrative in chapter 11, the tower. And he dispersed the nations over the face of the earth violently. And yet, at the end of that narrative, we don't find any hope until generations later, out of the midst of that dispersion, God calls his covenant chosen man. And so, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, which demonstrates an active faith. How active? It's pretty amazing. In chapter 12 and verse 5, he goes to Haran. And there are people that he speaks to. And as a result of the people, proselytes are converted in Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all the possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. Now, it's not that he owned slaves because the Hebrew here is not slaves. The idea is that he proselytized. He actually went and shared his faith and said, the Lord's calling me the God of heaven, already here in the midst of going out from his father's house, already in Haran, he was sharing his faith with those around, and they believed, and they were proselytized, and so he took his family and all those who believed and left. Now, the moment that that happens, we find a contrast in the next verse. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were there in the land. This is also a commentary that Moses puts in there. Moreh means instruction in Hebrew, and the terebinth was used for idol worship. This was a, a place where pagan idolatry and instruction was given. There were Canaanites in the land, and this was a pagan place. And God is calling Abram out to a place that he's going to show him, but it wouldn't be taken easily. He's going to have to fight against paganism and idolatry and wickedness. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Descendants means all those who share faith as Abram individually had that faith. But it's also used collectively. Paul actually uses this idea in Galatians 3.16 for Christ. Divine appearances were for the expressed purposes of transmitting the word of God to the patriarchs. God showed up so that he could instruct them in Bible lessons, so to speak. And Abram received direct revelation from God. And direct revelation from God is the sure manner to know God's will whether orally received or written down. If someone wants to know God's will, then go to the direct revelation of God. 
And so, as a result, he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God instructed him, the word came to him, and then there was a response. So they proclaimed their faith through worship. And he moved from there to the mountain of the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent. He built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. That was the response he got as a result of the direct revelation of God. In response to the word, there's worship. And that sets the pattern that we have all through the scriptures for worship. The word is given, there is a response to the word. That is why the very service that we have is set up in the way that it is. We are responding to the word in all of its various forms, whether in singing, whether in prayer, whether in the Psalms, whether in readings, Old Testament, New Testament, whether the word itself, whether the sacrament, which is a visible expression of the word. We have responses to all of those things. God promised that Abram's name would be a blessing, and in turn he calls on the name of or, in other words, he calls on the actions and character of God's attributes in worship. The name, as we studied some weeks ago in the very beginnings of studying Genesis, embodies who God is. It is his attributes. More importantly, this could be translated here, he made proclamation of the Lord by name, which even renders the idea of preaching. Abram's worship and proclamation show clearly that he is the right choice of God to be a proper channel of blessing to the nations. What is man's proper response to the revelation of God? It's to worship. And so the narrative then says he continues in faith to follow God and moves southward to settle. He goes into the land and he We'll see what God will do next. And so we have the text. Let's look at the doctrine that we'll pull out from the text. It is twofold. One, there is a blatantly distinguishable line between the city of God and the city of man. Hebrews 11, by faith... Abram obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing what he was, where he was going, for he waited for the city which had its foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's why one of Augustine's greatest works is called the city of God, explaining the heavenly, the heavenly city that we look to, that we live in, that our conversation is about. What God offers is far more valuable than what men can offer. It is the blessing. It is the union of having the Lord Jesus Christ. The physical line would ultimately give way to the spiritual line that is delineated both in Romans and Galatians. It's not simply a plot that you can stake a stake and build a house. It's far more than that. And and Abram was not as silly to think that it was just a tract of land that God was going to give him. He was looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. People should never let anything stand in the way of their pilgrimage to the city of God in any way. Abram didn't. 
when his heart was changed, when he had believed on God in obedience to the word, he set out, he left his family, left many of his possessions to follow God. Think about it. Some of you are very keen and close to leaving your home and moving away and going to a new place. And that could be a scary thing. Imagine being the, think about it, being the only man on the face of the entire planet that was called out by God to do God's will. God had not shown himself or revealed himself to anyone else. And he called Abram to leave his entire inheritance behind him and God would give him something better. And it wasn't just simply material things. Today it's hard to pull someone away from the TV just to get them to come to a Bible study. It is feeble faith, weak faith, immature faith to find things of the world more pleasurable and important than the things of God or it perhaps shows no faith at all. What Babel did not accomplish with an entire nation, God accomplishes with his chosen man. God is going to choose just one. And from that one, he's going to multiply him out. Even to be as the sands of the seashore and the stars in the sky. The Babylonians wanted a name which was great by their own power. But God cursed them and made their names infamous. Abram was an infamous pagan by his own sinful nature. <clears throat> and God makes his name great through the seed which is in him. The subtle pinnacle in these verses is the prophetic revelation of the word of God attesting to the ultimate blessing of Christ to come. That's the gospel that was preached to Abraham that Paul says in Galatians that was preached to Abraham. Why is Abram going to be blessed? And why is Abram going to be the father of many families on the earth? Why is his name going to be great? Is there something great about him? No. There's something great about Christ to come. Abram is not great in and of himself. He's great because he's chosen by God to further propagate the coming of the Messiah. And if Abram is cursed, it is as if they're cursing Christ because that is his chosen line. Remember, God is very particular and, and very specific about keeping watch over his family line. That's why he's going to curse anyone who curses Abram and he's going to bless anyone who blesses Abram. Because his son, who is in the loins of Abram, is great. If Abram is blessed, it's as if you're blessing Christ because Christ is in Abram. He's going to come through that line. So God will bless any who bless him because God's Son is so great. And Christ is the blessing because he will ultimately bring relief from the curse and the city of God will be firmly established in him. Secondly, to follow this text is to possess true faith. Well, we might ask the question, what is true faith? Faith is the first effect of God's calling by which man answers the call of God. Hosea 2 says, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. 
See, there's a reflex action that happens. God does the first, they will do the second. Faith is a trusting apprehension of Christ and his benefits. This fits just fine in what Abram did, since as Paul says in Galatians 3.8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Gospel? Yes, that was the gospel. There is only a life of faith or a life of damnation. Those are the only choices that men have, one or the other. Abram went with the life of faith because God worked faith in him. Faith is a reflex act that occurs in response to the word of God. It's like going to the doctor and the doctor hitting your knee with that little hammer. And when he hits your knee, your knee kicks out. If the doctor doesn't hit your knee, your knee won't kick out. God implants the word, writes it on the mind and heart, and the reflex act is that faith and acts. It is an act of confidence. It is an act of consolation. Faith knows what it believes. It is never at any time blind. Sometimes people think that what happened here with Abram is blind faith. Oh, I'll just go out and see what God does. No. His faith was a direct response from what God had come and revealed to him. There was a self-revelation of God. Specifically, the word of God came to him. And he responded by faith. Faith is comforted in what it believes. Because it knows what it believes and it rests in it. It's trust in its simplest form. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews tells us in 11.6. So faith receives, it embraces, and it appropriates Christ and all his work. This is what Abram did in the word of God. And the strength of the Christian is his faith. And the strength of faith is Christ. And by the very virtue of union with Christ, there is a transmission of the strength of Christ into the souls of his people. And that's what happened with Abram. And then, as a result, you find obedience. It just flows out. It just happens. True faith expresses itself in obedience. Some may say... That Abram was following God blindly. But he wasn't. God didn't tell him where he was going or how he was going to get there, but just that he was to come out from his father's house and dwell in a land that God would show him. That kind of faith is the kind of faith I wish all of us would have very strongly. Many times people want the whole picture before them before they do something or follow someone. I want to know everything that's going to happen my whole future, lay it out before I make this move, before I make this transition, before I do this or that. That's much like pliable in Pilgrim's Progress, who wanted to know everything that was going to happen before he started on the journey. And ultimately, when he got three steps ahead, he found that there was all of these pitfalls that he thought were going to befall him, and so he went back. And it is not for us to understand everything Abram, just get up, listen to me, and trust me, and be obedient, and go where I tell you to go. I'll show you. Like the car on a winding road, on a foggy road. You won't stop the car simply because you can't see 
the road all the way down. You're going to go step by step. So it's not blind faith, but it's founded on the promises of God. So Abram followed God because the promises of God were true. And he knew it. And he knew God would be faithful to it. And that true faith was welling up in him. It was faith based on the word of God. Now, God's being very gracious when he gives men faith and the ability to enact it. But grace needs strength. And by grace, men are saved. But by the power of the Spirit's transmission of strength for faith, grace is increased. Such a faith is very precious in the sight of God, as Second Peter 1 says, precious faith. It's precious because it's of divine grace. And if it's real, it's the product and power of the Holy Spirit. And its expression, then, will delineate between the true Christian and ultimately the gospel hypocrite, who doesn't really have true faith. Because true faith that is fueled by the word of God will be undoubtedly, without any question, expressed in real worship. Excitement in worship comes from a depth of knowledge, not feely, touchy experiences. Abram set up an altar twice and called on the name of the Lord. Both times that God appeared to him, gave him information, self-revelation, he worshipped. And the text is extremely specific. True faith calls out on God's name. When you have the name, you have intimate knowledge of him. You are calling on his attributes and his actions. He is Yahweh Jireh, the Lord who provides. That's his name. He calls out on his name. Abram worshipped God for who he is. Not simply what he had done. He hadn't done anything yet. He just promised him some things. He hadn't fought any battles. He hasn't delivered him from pestilence or disease. He hasn't blessed him with material possessions yet. He hasn't even made Sarai unbarren yet. All God did was give Abram a promise. And Abram's intimate knowledge of this God caused him to worship him for who he is. The man was so moved about his newfound knowledge that he witnessed to other pagans in Haran and gained some converts as a result. What did he tell him? What could he tell him? How much did he know? God had only revealed his word just a little bit to him, so he told him about this God whom he worships and loves. Worship of God requires knowledge. Knowledge of his promises, knowledge of who he is. Because prayer, worship, Bible reading, all the things that we do to worship God are going to be very dull if we don't know the revelation of God. Because to know the revelation of God is to know God. Faith draws the picture of a godly man, a godly woman. Faith is what helps us to see God clearly. The life of a saint of God is nothing but a life of faith. And his obedience and worship is a result of faith. He trusts himself and all his affairs to God alone. Faith and love are the two points on which all true religion of God turns. It's the two pinnacles, like a globe, like the world has a North Pole and a South Pole and turns on those poles. Faith and love are the two points in which all true religion to God turns. 
Let's apply it to us. Well, very simply, following God and the Savior Jesus Christ comes at high cost, does it not? It did for Abram. But he would rather go wherever God told him to go than stay in the worldly possessions and inheritance of his father. Leave it all. Do whatever I say and I will bless you. Can you follow a God who asks that of you? Sometimes God's instructions don't make sense. But we follow God nonetheless. We follow God because we trust him. We embrace him. Christ came and followed God's will. He came down here and took upon himself, assumed to himself, a nature, a human nature, where he allowed himself to be killed by the hands of pagans. Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done. And he means it when he says it, and it's not cliche to say it. And Abram did the same thing. Okay, not what I want. I'll do what you want. I'll go where you want me to go. Jesus was obedient to God the Father at the most expensive cost. And that was not simply dying physically, but rather being separated from the blessings of the Father in that he was obedient to death on the cross and the hell of God's wrath. He would go and do that. No one here could ever endure that. Only Christ could endure that. Because the very promises of God were at stake, Jesus would still go and do those things. The covenant of redemption was at stake. Christ's very oath was at stake. But he was promised. He would see the travail of his soul. He would ultimately see all his work. And in much the same way, we are to be conformed into the image of his son, as Romans tells us. Thus we follow in the same way that Abram followed God and Christ followed the Father. We look to them and we follow. We follow God by faith in the steps, in the same kind of steps that Abram took, in the same kind of steps that Christ took. Following Christ, following God, is done in steps, just the way Abram had done it. Imagine what Abram was saying. I've never really known these new teachings. I've never really heard these strange doctrines about God. I've never obviously had God show up in my living room before. I learned about pagan gods in a pagan city, and that's what I've grown up with all my life. But nothing of these new things of the supreme God from the city of God. What should I do now? Abraham went out and he became an evangelist. And he started preaching. And he gained converts. And he set up an altar and he worshipped God. And he trusted God. And he knew that the God was the God of Jeremiah. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. So, ask yourself what kind of faith you have. Do you trust God in the difficult circumstances that life brings you? And obviously it must have been pretty radical because it was already family-based for Abram to leave his father's house. Imagine what his father said. What do you mean, leave? Well, I heard a voice. You heard a voice and you're going to leave. What is faith? Faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin, 
and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. That is why Abram is used as the father of our faith. That that very idea is attributed to him being called out and following God. It is of heavenly origin and the acts of true faith will reflect how the city of God operates. But, just like Abram growing in Christ, growing in God, is done in steps. God doesn't expect us, God doesn't expect any of you to understand everything right off. But he does expect you to know all things eventually, which is our goal, to know the word. We all need to be taught in the school of obedience and repentance before we ever get into some of the deeper things of God. Certainly, Abraham was not going to learn those lessons he learned by God's hand in Genesis 22 and Genesis 12. That was later. God wanted him just to get up out of his father's house and leave here. God does not require mature faith from immature Christians, but he does require obedience with what you know. You hear God. He tells you this or that through the word, and so we obey. Abram, go from your father's house to a land I will show you. And Abram was obedient with the little that he had. As you learn more, you become more obedient. For knowledge makes us more responsible. And knowledge waters the soul and grows it up into a tree. And the Bible speaks about knowledge over 1,500 times. As as much as it talks about the love of God. More so even. Following Christ comes by obedience in the Christian life through faith. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not, if you're a theologian and you have ten doctrines and have the alphabet next to your name, you'll love me. But simply as a Christian, rather, be obedient with what you know and love me with it. Now, at that point, lots of people will fall into complacency. Such a dreadful disease and plague is a complacency. It's the, I know enough, I'm fine, my Christianity is good where it is, I'm happy with what I've obtained. Unfortunately, God is not. God desires that we continue to grow in grace and knowledge. We aren't allowed to be complacent. Yet, we follow Christ in steps. The more he gives us, the more we know the more we grow. But a step is a step to step, not to stay complacent. It moves along. A step is there so that we can step up. In Pilgrim's Progress, there was little faith. And little faith may make us stagnant. Little faith will get you into heaven, but with nothing to show for your endeavor in this life. The whole point of the Christian life is to grow more, to come closer to Christ, to become like Christ in obedience. And that will never happen with immature faith. Even Bunyan says on a side note, there is no great heart for God where there is only little faith. Faith must be nourished by the word of God. Don't believe people when they say that they're Christians and they don't regularly sit under the word of God. Just don't believe that. True faith follows what God says in his word. True faith wants to sit under the word. True faith has to grow by the word. True faith 
doesn't create such people who reject the word. Those are hypocrites. You as a saint desire to feed faith so that it grows, so that it will further trust, so that it will worship the one who increases it in you. This is what Abram did. He heard God's word and he obeyed it. God had given him a new heart. God had given him the faith he needed. He was following God. He was listening to God. He would go wherever God would want him to go. And even right from the very beginning, he preached the God whom he knew. It's a life of faith. And faith, such a life, can be very difficult at times because we don't know what the end of the road is going to hold. We don't know what God is going to necessarily do with us. We don't know where he will ultimately bring us. But that's not the point. The point here in Genesis 12 is that Abram heard the word of God and obeyed the word of God. And that is the pinnacle upon which the rest of the entire book sits. Following Christ by faith comes at high cost. Following Christ by faith is done in steps. Following Christ by faith comes by obedience. Might it be that we would have the same kind of obedient faith that Abram did? Let us pray together. Lord, some of us, you are calling from distant places to leave our family, our home, the place where we were settled and move us to new places. Others may be called to go from one point in their faith and increase to another. In whatever situation you have placed us in, Lord, we ask that you would help us to have a faith that is obedient to you, a faith that grows in the steps that you give us to walk upon the path of life, and, Lord, a faith that is obedient in every way. Abraham was called out, out of his father's house to go to a land that you would show him, and he trusted you, and he trusted your word, and he trusted what you were telling him. We ask, O oh God, that you would increase our faith, that we might trust in your word and what you are telling us even this day. All of our situations are different. But all of our situations are the same, O oh Lord, in that they are by faith. We pray that you would increase it in us by the power of the Spirit, that we might follow you and trust you, embrace you, rest in you, and all the work that Christ has accomplished. Let us be like Abram. And we so ask that you would hear us in these things. In Christ's name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com. 
by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.